Welcome to Refocus, a podcast that helps you find your focus to build a thriving creative career in the music industry. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Hello and welcome to Refocus. Today, our guest is Sophie Lukacs, hailing from Montreal by way of Budapest. Sophie is a chora player, singer, and composer. She draws inspiration from her long training in Western classical violin and over seven years of study in Mali with chora virtuoso Tamani Jabate. Sophie is forging a distinctive and alluring style within the folk music tradition. As a singer-songwriter, her concerts are built around her own original works for chora and voice, intertwined with Hungarian folk tunes and Malian mundane pieces. Her debut album will be released in April, featuring two tracks with the legendary Habib Kwate, which launches at the Shankman Center in Ottawa and the Toronto Jazz Bistro. She's accompanied on stage by Calabas and Cello and sings in English, Bambara and Hungarian. Welcome, Sophie. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's too bad this is a podcast. Everyone can't see your very cool and eclectic looking shelf behind you. Tons of books, a ton of neat artifacts up there. I feel like in some ways, a lot of the stuff that's up there, some of the artifacts draw from some of the same cultural traditions as your music. Can you tell us a little bit about that and go into a bit about how you got introduced to to that culture? I had never been exposed to mounting music. I grew up listening mostly to like Western classical and Pete Seeger and I was like in my early 20s and I had been invited to go to Burkina Faso and I saw Abib Kwete in concert and it was like one of the most amazing shows I've ever seen and I heard a lot of choir music and saw choir players and was kind of blown away by this instrument and also how much incredible music I was hearing in Burkina Faso and So I came back home to Montreal and kind of became obsessed with this musical culture and like bought all the CDs of Tumani and Balake and all the core music I could get my hands on. And I think it took me a while until I kind of allowed myself to think about playing. I think I I always wanted to, but I, I didn't see any models of what that would look like. I only saw it in the context of the griots. I, I do remember coming home and like Googling. I remember this very distinctly. I was like living in the basement of my parents' house and I Googled like Cora players in Montreal. And at the time there were none. So I was like, oh, well, just forget about that and try to go to med school because that was like my new plan. And so I kind of put that aside and was just like listening, just doing like a lot of musical research. And then it was like five years later, I gave up the med school thing. I was living in New York at the time and I was kind of seeing like signs of the Quora or I saw like a Quora player on a festival in Brooklyn. And, you know, I think I I had a little bit more space. I was not on the med school path anymore. And I went to a show. It was at the Met museum. It was on a Friday. It was music at the Met. And I asked the chora player, it was Yakuba Sisoko, it's his band. He's a Malian chora player. And I asked him if I could have a lesson. And I went to Harlem the next day and I had a lesson. And I think I, as soon as I had the chora in my hands on my lap, <laughs> it's for people who don't know the chora, it's a very large instrument. And most of the time you play sitting down with it, placed on your knees, thighs. So, and that was kind of the beginning of when I actually started studying. Do a lot of 
women play the Quora? I feel like a lot of the people you mentioned were were men that you were listening to. Has there been maybe traditionally a gender divide there? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just speak to the tradition in Mali, but I think in most of West Africa, women would sing and men would play instruments. And then further, the people who played the musicians were from the musical cast. So in the Mandan culture, they were the griot or the jelly. So you were born into the musical families and the music was passed on through the families throughout the generations and centuries. <laughs> so the core and the Quora, so you had to be a griot, a male. I think also the there's a lot of like folklore and mysticism around the Quora. So that was another reason women couldn't play. Like they said, if you played the Quora, you wouldn't be able to have children and many legends around the Quora that so that's one of them. But what was the reaction like? So you're not male, you're not a griot. So I think like, because I'm not Malina, I'm not from West Africa, I'm a white woman. <laughs> so I think as an outsider to this musical culture, like I come with the same kind of expectations and limitations are not really upheld for me. So I know that in Mali, there still aren't a lot of women who play. There are a few you know, and there are women who play instruments, there are uh, women guitarists, singer-songwriters, and I have a friend, Wasa Kuyate, she is a core player, Malin core player and singer, and so the challenges that she faces in society are not the same as, as me, and it's been like a slow process for her own family to accept that, you know, she's a core player. So for me, obviously, my family thought I was a little bit crazy, but after were very supportive. My experience in Mali and in the community was positive. I think I faced a lot of challenges that are not so different from other women in the industry that aren't necessarily specific to Quora players. So yeah, I think like trying to learn from Quora masters who just don't want to teach you and like that's something that could happen in any musical field or dynamic but there were obviously like a lot of challenges to learning an instrument that is traditionally learned and taught orally so it was very different from studying western classical music but then you go on to study with one of the most well-known Kora players, Tumani Jibate. How did you connect with him? So, you know, I started studying in New York. One of the things that was really challenging for me was this idea of having like a maître, your teacher. And I was very confused. It's also, it's also this whole other musical culture and no one was really guiding me or it was like a choose your own adventure book. Mm -hmm. And I was really concerned also about respecting my teachers and respecting the culture and so this was one of the things I didn't really know how it worked like I thought well if you have your teacher then that's like your one teacher and then you're not allowed to study with different teachers so I was a little bit confused by that and you know I studied with Yakuba and then I studied with another teacher in New York and then I came to Montreal and when I started I was really looking for like the maître who would really teach me but like 10 years later, I can say like, I think I, I put so much expectation on like one teacher, like teaching me everything when in the reality, 
unless you're maybe like Tumani's son. It doesn't work like that. So Tumani gave a master class in Paris back in 2014. And my mom was like, well, you have to go. It's his music that inspired you so much. So I went to Paris and I was part of a group master class. And then I stayed a little longer and he invited me to Bamako. And of course, I was just I think I knew when I started studying that I needed to go and study. And I had always wanted to go and study in Mali because every country has its own style, every region has its own style, even though it used to be all one empire. And it was really like the Malian style that I wanted to study. So Tumani invited me to Bamako. Of course, I said yes. And I arrived early September in 2015. With Tumani, he, when I arrived, he was like finishing an album in Paris with M, Mathieu Shadid and Fatoumata Jawara and another artist. So he was quite busy. And in the beginning too, I was like very, let's say naive about how quickly I could learn. I think I really felt like I was really late. I don't know compared to what or who, but I felt I was like really old. I was starting a new instrument like I wasn't four like I had been with the violin I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do and I think so I arrived in Mali with this idea that I would just like learn everything in one year which is really funny (laughs) in retrospect and then I think over the next like seven eight years my perspective shifted so much on so many things even just like my relationship to the Quora and to music so I studied with Tumani And then I also ended up studying with many players and came to understand that like all my friends who are Quora players in Mali, everybody plays with everybody. And the kind of first five years, I would spend one year studying with one teacher and I still have great relationships with all my Quora teachers. And I was just back there in December in Mali. And it's so nice to play with them because the musical repertoire is such that you keep building on it. And it's like that throughout your life, I think. Can you explain a little bit about that? Like, what do you mean when you say that you keep building on it? Is it like a set type of repertoire that you're improvising on or? Yeah, so the Mondang repertoire is about 500 pieces of music and most of them have a song. And in each song, there's many different variations. So I don't know, I know maybe about 20 or 30 and most of them I've been working on since I started playing the Quora. And you play the accompaniments and the melody, and then, you know, you keep practicing and then you improvise. And it's really fun when you play with other Quora players because one person plays the accompaniment and you just improvise and keep building on that over the years and kind of never ends. <laughs> Coming from, you know, that Western classical background, were you used to improvising or was this something new to you? No, I have a funny story about that. So I remember when I came back from Burkina Faso and I was listening to like Ali Farka and I remember I started improvising on my violin and it was the first time that I ever improvised on my violin. It sounds crazy maybe to some people who have grown up like always just play <laughs> whatever they find. But to me, it was like mind blowing. Like, wait, I can play along to an Ali Farkata album. I don't need to just play whatever Bach or not whatever Bach, but sure, Bach. no offense, Bach, you are still <laughs> the OG. But with the choir, definitely for many years, I would not improvise. And I also felt that was another thing. Like I had to reach a certain level before, I mean, this was all in my head. Like I, mm-hmm. I gave myself these limitations and 
I remember in 2017, I had a show, this amazing balafon player, which is like one of the ancestors of the xylophone, but they're wood blocks. And he invited me to play with them. Then we were rehearsing and I was just playing all the solos that I had learned from listening to Tumani's albums. And Lasana said, Sophie, if you don't play, like play, play, not this rehashing, <laughs> playing too many solos. He's like, I'm not going to pay you. You have to play. I was terrified. What do you think was, I think a lot of people have probably been in the same place you have. What do you think was holding you back? And what was scary for you about just letting go and hopping into that improvisory space? For sure. I think everyone maybe has different experiences to the way they studied music. But I think for me, violin and Western classical music, I mean, so much of it is about imitating and perfecting, you know, repertoire in these pieces. So I think for me also, like, so my ear is so highly trained to any deviation from that. And I think the you can deviate when you get to a certain level, when you've really master the air quotes are you know then you're allowed but otherwise you're not allowed to deviate like no no mm. with time with anything so that's a lot of pressure and that is the opposite it doesn't really give you a space for any kind of oh i'm making some big statements here <laughs> <I love> <laughs> no creative freedom in that well no it's just a very different way of playing music but i think that translates across like sometimes there's like it's fear of failure maybe fear of success and like all wrapped up in the same place and it yeah. can kind of be like that hesitation I, I get it all the time just bonkers anxiety when it comes to improvising and i love improvising i love it it's one of the, my favorite things to do but I, there's a lot of like self-doubt imposter syndrome fear of all of the things that i can be scared yeah. about you know yes but i think that's so important too right like you know i had been wanting to improvise but i just i was so scared to take that leap i had brought a looping pedal with me and the next day you know i woke up and i was like no i'm gonna sit down i'm gonna record you know i had a little speaker i had my little looping pedal and i said you know i'm gonna play like just one of the traditional pieces i'm just gonna play the accompaniment and i'm gonna improvise and so i sat down and okay the batteries like there were no batteries batteries were really good. so i set out on a mission it took me like a few hours because everything takes a very long time in bumago and i got back and i recorded and then just improvise just play and i did it and i was like wow this is crazy <laughs> This is so fun. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it was just like, ah, uh, it was like another, you know, world just opened. And, and I think for the concert, I think I probably improvised a little bit and I got paid and he was happy. <laughs> I think the improvising and that vulnerability, it's not just how we improvise on stage. I think it's a good metaphor for many things and the way we play music and the way we are on stage and how we're able to share and really be present and not judging ourselves. And mm -hmm. it's all connected. And it, it's really hard. I remember I one of my core teachers in Pisoko, a different one from Gambia, he told me, him too, sometimes he's on stage and he gets scared and then it's finished. And then, you know, he closes and he can't improvise. And mm -hmm. this is like one of the greatest core players in the world. I mean, he's just wow. incredible. So I, I think it's a practice. I think it's a practice in like not judging yourself and like learning how to show up and 
enjoy the music making with whoever you're playing with and it's a ongoing work that I don't think it ever ends. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that to the listener, like to the audience member, seeing you, if you were just playing those notes by rote, you know, and the ones that you memorized and they go, oh, okay, that's nice. But you, there's like almost like a bodily change that goes through you when you're actually like in the moment improvising and in that spirit of it. And I think that the audience can feel that. And when you're ready to be vulnerable, they'll lean in. Yeah, I agree. I think the more you share, the more, you know, they feel when you're on stage the public or whoever you're playing for. I've also gotten to a place now where if I'm not improvising, I kind of feel a little bad. Like, why not? Like, wh why didn't I? I just gave like this safe performance and it doesn't feel good to, to go that way anymore. There's like a little extra piece there's like, oh, I could have given this little, this extra bit that I had inside me. Yeah. Leave it all on the stage, Sophie. I know. I'm thinking <laughs> about my last show. I'm like, yeah, because I got a little scared. Mm -hmm. It was like a different public and I was a little scared. I thought I have to give a safe performance <laughs> with no wrong note. <laughs> yeah. As if anyone can tell when it's a wrong note anyways, right? Like I know. And there are no wrong notes anyways. Oh, that, that's that's really neat though. Thank you for sharing that part of it because it's I think it's a really interesting part of like the psyche of musicianship that isn't talked about too often. So at some point then, like when do you start writing your own songs and incorporating the chorus into your own songwriting? I was always very conscious of being an outsider to the, the musical culture that... I was kind of obsessed with like this idea of legitimacy as a chorus player. I invented a lot of things in my head. Like I was like, I don't want people to say like, oh, she's really good like for a woman or she's really good for like a white woman. I just wanted to be a good chorus player. So I think for me that meant really studying the repertoire for a long time before I tried to write my own music. That went on for many years, <laughs> maybe about, I don't know, four or five years I was studying the repertoire. But I think it was also, it kind of happened naturally. Like I remember early on, I asked one of my teachers, like, can I improvise? And it was like, yeah. Like, can I write my own little solo into this song? And he said, yeah, of course. So I remember we had an idea and he kind of helped me figure out where to place the thumb because everything all the fingers are moving at the same time and that was a little tricky for me and he helped me so I was improvising okay so I felt like okay it's okay for me to improvise and then at a certain point I wanted to write my own melodies I think before it wasn't even songs I think I just wanted to write accompaniments and like grooves on the chora and then I thought okay I don't want to write in English because that's weird. You know, no one sings in English with this instrument, so I had better write in Bambara. Then I began to feel like writing in Bambara is nice, but I would like to sing in one of my own languages or language I feel more comfortable. And so I started writing in English, and then things kind of evolved from there. And I also realized, like, when I was writing and, like, was able to write in ways that felt more in line with myself that those songs made more sense and I think these ideas of what I'm allowed to do as a core player I began like shedding those 
over the years. Yeah. Do you feel like writing original music, you were giving yourself permission then or in some way, like kind of gave you license to do things a little differently than maybe you had been taught or had expectations on yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Nobody ever told me anything. I mean, none of my teachers told me you have to master this before. I would say it was the opposite. And that helped me also get rid of those expectations that I had placed on myself. They all encouraged me to write my own music. They were like, just play, play whatever you feel like, find your own style. All my teachers, that was really important because I think it's very limiting <laughs> musically if you're just trying to do one thing and also especially with the Quora because I'll never be a griot, I'll never be considered a griot. It's not really what I'm trying to do. So I think it was great that I devoted so much time, not only because I enjoyed it and it's a beautiful musical culture, but it gave me a good base with the Quora as I learned it like that and also like changed my life. So what's your creative process like now when you're songwriting or when you're making music? Are you just drawing from the Quora or are there other parts of the creative process when you're songwriting? I compose on the Quora just because it's, I guess, the instrument that I have the closest relationship to since like the past decade. But I also write on the piano because it kind of opens up so much more space. And then I try to transpose that on the Quora and I'm awaiting my new pedal, which was my birthday present, which is a sustainer pedal. So mm. you have like three and a half seconds, which is really long for the Quora. Mm. Yeah, and then I think there are different ways of playing the Quora, which you don't need to have the Quora kind of be the bass line to write the whole song. I think now that after this first album and kind of arranging with other instruments, the second album definitely, I'd like more space. So the Quora isn't the base of everything because that can be a little plucky. <laughs> so that's the like instrumental answer to your question. I think the first album, everything was based on the Quora and I was using like simple song structures and I would like now like to explore different directions, like more Hungarian folk music. I'm working with my a cellist and kind of working on different instruments, transposing that on the Quora and just having more space in my compositions. It's a little bit tricky with the Quora, but trying to figure that out and how that can be presented on stage as well. When all this other, all the other career stuff, like grant writing and promotion and the album cycle and all that starts to come up, how do you prioritize that creative time? With discipline and also maybe with privilege you know I'm not supporting a family or a lot of people so I mean time is definitely like a luxury but within my own life definitely like if I'm in Montreal then I try to keep all the mornings for creative work otherwise then you start getting into all the emails and it's so not conducive to creative work you need that quiet and space and writing a grant or updating your website or your link tree or your socials. It's not creative for me. Yeah. Do you find that draining? It's very hard. I am kind of always back and forth on how to deal with social media. And for me, I found like I take a lot of breaks, like even if it was like, it's like a month 
if I don't have shows. I think for people who use it as a tool, like in the creative field, it's very hard. We were talking about this with my dad yesterday. It's very hard, you know? I think it's all designed to keep you addicted and doom scrolling and all that. And even if you're not doom scrolling, I think for me, I can feel bad when I see things. You know, I feel like happy for my friends, but I think it's really hard not to compare yourself to other musicians who are maybe like touring more or, oh, they're in Paris. So it's hard. I think sometimes if I'm being like very efficient, productive, I'll like look at oh, he's playing here. Oh, these are good venues. Like, let me send these to my agent. Maybe I could play here. But then other times it's like, ugh. You know, and I don't often feel good after mm -hmm. I've had these thoughts. And, the, you know, I think I feel good when you're working and you're practicing. And for me, not, not much of social media feels good. <laughs> I read this the other day. I wish I could remember where... But it was a musician talking about this exact thing and saying, like, you're not just comparing yourself to one other person. You're comparing yourself to, like, 50 other artists at the same time, too. <laughs> yes, it's a lot. And you can find something <laughs> to compare yourself with everyone. Like, wow, this person has amazing visuals. Like, it's amazing if you're, like, just envious and using that to work on how you can get to that place. But it's also insane that... You are comparing yourself to all these different people, you know, with zero context and just in like these perfect, like cultivated images that, so it's damn Instagram. It would be nice if all the social medias just shut down for a while. Yeah. Could they do that? Can we? <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe we can start a hashtag. Do it from within. I feel like if anyone could do it, you have the gumption. I think, yeah, you can work on it. Before we end this episode, we're excited to premiere a live recording of a song that you performed at last year's Folk Music Ontario conference, which was recorded by the very multi-talented Tim O'Reilly from Sound Still Productions. If you're interested in watching this beautiful video, I will link it in the show notes as well as all of Sophie's information and where you can find out more about her, but also you can head to our website, folkmusicontario.org slash refocus, R-E-F-O-L-K-U-S. And you'll be able to watch this beautiful video. Uh, before we go, Sophie, can you tell us a little bit about this song? Yeah. So Falling is one of the songs on my upcoming album, which will be released in April. And I wrote it along with the rest of the album in Bamako. And it's a song about kind of plunging into the unknown and the beginning stages of, of a relationship and making yourself vulnerable. And I think that the kind of uncertainties and that can bring. And yeah, so it's a song about that. Incredible. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. And everyone, please enjoy Falling by Sophie Lukacs. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. I could keep pain white and have to fade. 
face the morning that I took a chance on love with you Knew you had your demons too when you showed me that was room for two it for this episode of refocus please subscribe rate and review on the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode 
For more information, you can visit us at folkmusicontario.org and follow us on social media at Folk Music Ontario. This refocus session is brought to you through the generous support of the Department of Canadian Heritage.